Hi, and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts, and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. Hosted by Chanel Gleason Wiley and her team of earth advocates at Moss Environmental, we crack down on the big topics like sustainability and conservation and break them into bite sized chunks of inspiration and actionable steps that you can use to unleash the eco warrior inside you. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk, and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights, and real life stories beyond the green line we balance along. In this episode, we're talking about striving for your dream career in STEM and why the sky is not the limit, why you should take the advice of your career's advisor with a grain of salt and tread your own path in this exciting industry. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Beyond the Green Line podcast. I'm your host, Chanel Gleeson-Willie. With us today, we have Nina Hooper, an Australian woman, aerospace engineer, Harvard and Stanford graduate, and education entrepreneur. Nina's latest venture is as the co-founder and CEO of Ability, an online presentation platform to help educators bring their material to life and deliver interactive classes and workshops. But Nina didn't start her career as a businesswoman. She wanted to be an astronaut. Hi, Nina. Hi there, Chanel. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you today and have a chat with you. So you wanted to be an astronaut as you were growing up. Let's have a chat about wanting to be an astronaut. It's a dream for so many kids, but you took it a step further. So let's talk about that. I definitely did. There was, you know, um, I think a lot of people think of the teen years, like the 16 years as the time when kids start to get interested in relationships and partying and kind of being teens and it was the time that I just got totally obsessed with um, really space and astrophysics and ideas about like how the universe worked and where it came from and ultimately what was our place as people in this like really crazy huge thing called space Um, and I watched you know I, I wasn't I was good at maths in high school at the time, but I certainly wasn't at the level of a research scientist. So I watched all the popular documentaries, you know, Brian, Brian Cox and Brian Greene and Stephen Hawking. And I started reading uh, all the different books and um, I just found it totally fascinating. I think it was for me like a kind of a coming of age passion of like understanding what our role is in the universe Um and also then just like an academic interest. So I, I used it as a way to channel my interest in maths and science towards kind of that direction of like I care about these tools, maths and science, so that I can go and explore these problems. Um, and for me, I'm a pretty adventurous person, so the pinnacle of that felt like actually going to space. It wasn't the same thing as the, the research that was motivating me, but it was certainly one of those kind of, adrenaline-juicing adventures that I wanted to undertake at some point in my life. So I set it out to be a a life's goal to go to space. And certainly at that time, the only possible way to do that was to actually become an astronaut. So that was was my plan. And I I went about trying to figure out that process, which I can can definitely tell you more about. So I read um, a 
a little a piece that you wrote on the Osmanpreneur uh, website looking for feedback. But you yeah. you said at, in this little um, this little piece of information that your careers advisor at school had actually told you to become a was it a landscape gardener um, when you asked them for advice on where you should be heading with your career. Now, I find that absolutely fascinating because that was exactly what I was told and I found it <laughs> I found it to be the most insane career choice for me at the time. Um, why do you think you were told that that was a good career path for you? So I think um, I, I hope that there aren't too many careers counsellors listening that are going to get really offended by this, but my, my perspective is that... Um, there are certain tools and surveys that you can use to try and understand people's aptitudes and point them towards careers that they might be successful in. And that's often, not always, but often the limit of the capability of a careers counsellor to engage with a student. And it's partly the school system. They have 15 or 30 minutes once every six months to a year with a kid. So they really, they don't know these students for the most part. And then they have this test that shows them some kind of aptitudes and they just put, put the kids in a bucket. And so I, I really think that that's what's happened to me. It wasn't that there was some major failure of understanding. It was that the system wasn't even set up to really give me deep and meaningful advice. But the second piece that I say is really if a careers counsellor has been a careers counsellor their whole life, how could they ever possibly with no discredit to them as an individual human how could they ever possibly give a wide variety of kids advice on what careers to have when they haven't had any of those careers themselves it doesn't doesn't make sense to me the whole system seems flawed and so instead what I think these careers counselors should be teaching is how do you go and identify what you're passionate about how do you go and find people in those fields that can be better guides for you but instead what they tend to do is kind of just bucket you off they have a certain amount of time they've checked you off their list and that's the that's the definition of their responsibility so i actually think it's like a, a totally systemic problem that this happens to someone like you it happens to someone like me everyone that i speak to has these experiences with career counselors and um, I think it's just a, it, it isn't designed to work the way we think it should work fundamentally. Yeah. Yes, I uh, wholeheartedly agree with that. And as a 16 year old, this had a pretty profound effect on you in really galvanizing your um, ideas about your future career. So tell me as a 16 year old, what, what was it that this advice actually did for you? Well, I am definitely stubborn and um, competitive. And so that advice kind of made me think like, like, you don't think I can do what I say I can do. I'm going to, I'm going to prove you wrong. And it, it certainly wasn't just the careers counselor. I had classmates at school um, that would kind of poke fun at my idea of wanting to go to space or wanting to be a high achiever. I had a teacher of mine also mentioned that it was more likely that I would win the lottery than that I would become an astronaut. And he, he liked me and it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't with the intent to like stop me in any sense, but it's just this, like, I think it's really common in Australia, this realism and not really uh, wanting to see beyond the boundaries of what's possible. But every time someone gave me one of those pieces of feedback, I'd always be like, well, I'll show you, let me, let me make it happen. Um, so 
I went out and, and did what I just said that I think careers counselors should be set up to do, which was I went and sought out somebody who had done what I wanted to do and then asked them what the pro- path was. I think it's really, really hard to figure out online, not knowing anything about a career, where to even start. So the first point should be talking to someone who has some kind of map of that industry to help navigate where you would want to be. And I just so happened to see in the, in the age when I was in Melbourne in high school that there was an astronaut coming to Melbourne to do a talk. Um, and I took, I think I honestly, I think I skipped like the last class of school one day for the session that he was in. I just left the, left the school and went into the city and went into this auditorium. It was right in Fed Square. And he gave his talk and at the end I went up to him and I said, I love astrophysics. I want to be an astronaut. What should I do? His name was Rex Walheim um, and he'd been to space think, twice at that point. And he basically just said, well, you need to find the best possible school for what you want to study. Have a look at Harvard and MIT. You want to be at the best place because you want to be the best in the world, around the best people so that you're the most competitive possible applicant. Um, you probably also want to learn Russian or Chinese, um, and you you just you want to be the best. So do the thing that you love and find the people and the places that are going to facilitate that. Um, and so that's where I got it into my head that I wanted to go to Harvard because Harvard had this fantastic astrophysics department, and I still really wanted to explore my passion for how space works and all the kind of physics of it. Um, and at Harvard, there was like. 200 researchers but only five students per year who study the subject so you could pick from amongst researchers who do the coolest things um if you remember a few years ago this image of a black hole came out so that was one of the research teams at harvard that i got to work with while i was there another one um, that i worked with was professor studying asteroid mining what if we sent mining equipment out to space and mined asteroids um, so I got the pick of the, the bunch when I got there, but that was, that was the main motivation. I got it into my head at about 16 after talking to this astronaut, I need to go to the best school in the world. So I have the best experiences. So I'm really, really competitive when it comes to this astronaut program because they get 10,000 applicants and they choose six people. How, how else could you possibly stand out? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's really what seeded it. That conversation with the person who had done it before. So you ended up. Uh, wanting to apply to Harvard yes, as an Australian student. Correct. And you, there was this five positions that um, you could apply for at Harvard? Um, no. So they take, they take 1,600 students or thereabouts every year, um, of which less than 200 are international students. So I was applying for those kind of 200 international student spots and, uh, frankly, of which probably about half are student athletes who have been recruited by the athletics teams to join certain teams. So it's um, to be an international student is, is certainly uh, it's pretty hard to stand out. Yeah. Yeah. So talk me through that process. How did you stand out? Cause um, yeah. that's an amazing achievement. Thank you. Um, so as I mentioned, I really did like maths and physics and I, I was good in school. Um, I got a I got a good ATAR when I graduated. Uh, I also did the US SAT exams, which were required at the time to get into these schools. So I did I did like everything right and by the book. Uh, but there are a lot of people who got slightly better scores than me and did everything right by the book as well that didn't get in. So the things that I think uh, really stood out were were two components. 
One is the personal essay. So you have to submit an essay about who you are when you apply to college in the US, which isn't the case here. It's meant to be a much more holistic process. They want to get to know you, what you care about, what your passion is. Um, and because I had a really well-developed passion at a young age, um, I think I was just able to articulate that and, and kind of make the admissions council believe that I was on a mission and that they, I was someone that they should get behind and support. Um, and so I think that's just a big area of differentiation. You can really add your voice to the grades. Um, but even more impactfully, and this is the craziest thing that happened to me really ever at a young age, um, I just got an incredible reference letter from someone uh, in our like extended, extended network um, that I think really tipped the scales. And this is basically what happened. My mom is the biggest networker I have ever met. She'll go to a dinner party, an event, and she's always kind of just excited and proud about what me and my, my sister are up to and will tell people about it. And rather than just saying, this is what's happening, she'll always add an ask at the end of it. Do you know somebody who has this thing that could help my daughter on this thing? So she, I don't know where she developed this skill. I think she kind of just like worked it out herself and she doesn't even, she wouldn't even articulate that this is what she's doing, but she always just adds on an ask at the end of a conversation. And it's never something that's laborious, just like, oh, do you know anyone who has this kind of instrument or do you know anyone that does this that my daughter could talk to or whatever and all the time she gets these pretty crazy introductions so one of them uh that around this time where she talked to this biologist and said my daughter wants to go into astrophysics do you know anyone who's in astrophysics at melbourne uni with you that would be someone to connect her with and he i don't think he did off the top of his head but he basically just invited me into his office and said, I think you should do biology. And I'm like, I want to do biology. I want to do astrophysics. And he gave me a list of five astrophysicists. And this is just some guy that mum, like from a friend of a friend that she'd met at a party, right? Like totally random. So I'm at his office in Melbourne Uni and he gives me a list of five astrophysics professors um, at universities in Australia, not even in Melbourne. And I picked one of them um, off the list, the reason I liked him, he was doing research I thought was really cool and he had gone and done his PhD at Harvard. So I was like, I want to talk to this guy. Like he's been to the school I've been to. He's studied the things that I think are cool. Like this is the one I want to get introduced to. And this professor was at Australian National University. He agreed for me to come do like an internship with him for a week as a professor. Um, so my whole family drove to Canberra and I'm getting back to the Harvard application. This is all relevant. This is a very long-winded story. But we drove to Canberra. Um, sat in on one of his lectures. I was sitting there like, oh, my God, this is amazing, but also this is so complicated. There's so much maths that I don't understand. We went back to the motel we were staying in. That night he won the Nobel Prize in physics completely randomly. Like, And I'm, I'm at, like, I'm, I'm now he's, like, intern for the week, following him around from party to party to celebrate his Nobel Prize. We didn't do very much physics at all that week. It was just this like ridiculous celebration of achievement in, um, in science, which was crazy. I mean, obviously that's not what it's about. Everyone wants to have that moment of achievement, but the research had come much, much earlier. But as a 16-year-old, I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. This is a celebration of knowledge and, um, and science and space. And, like, this is, this is amazing. So he ultimately wrote me a reference letter. And really I think that's one of the major things that made the, the difference um 
that said, I don't want to like, you know, I don't want someone to come away from this podcast and just go, oh, she was really lucky because uh, I, I certainly was. But we also weren't wealthy. We, we actually, I grew up on welfare. So I'm a low income, single parent uh, kid. Um, we didn't naturally have some exclusive network that we were part of. It was really just this habit of mum asking for introductions to things. Um, and then we planted a lot of seeds and this one happened to be really, really lucky uh, and did make a huge difference. Um, but if my grades and things hadn't been good as well, of course, that wouldn't have worked. So it's a, it's a whole coming together of many things. But I feel uh, extraordinarily lucky and grateful to everyone that supported me along the way. Yeah. That was an amazing story. I actually got goosebumps listening to that final part. <laughs> that was, yeah, just just amazing. So you've got this amazing reference letter and you've been accepted to Harvard. Yes. What is a, being a student at an Ivy League university in the US actually like? Did you it, live on campus? Yes. So in the first year at Harvard, everyone lives in the Harvard Yard, which are these beautiful old red brick dorms around the main courtyard. So you're all these like 18, 19 year olds living in these 350, 60 year old buildings that, you know, past presidents have been in. And actually the very first day you arrive, you get a list of all the people that have ever lived in your very dorm. And some people had like crazy, like famous names. That was really, really cool. Um, but it's, it's the most, it's the most kind of incredible experience, especially coming from a culture in Australia where you live at home and you just commute to uni and you take your classes pretty casually. There you're thrown into, uh, it's really like Hogwarts. I, I don't know that sounds so silly, but it really does feel like that. You're thrown into this um, camp on this beautiful campus with all this history, with all these smart and ambitious people and so much life and activities going on and you're learning together and, um, yeah, it, on the whole, it was really amazing, and I'm I'm super glad I did it. Harvard is not like a crazy party school like what you see in in some of the movies about you know college uh, college crazy stuff happening. Um, it's it's definitely fun, but um, it's not it's not like a really wild party campus. You can get that in other places, not there. Um, but yeah, it was it was an awesome experience. So you mentioned your mum a lot and how her trait to have an ask at the end of, um, I, I guess, meeting people, uh, such an entrepreneur skill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and your mum is an entrepreneur. So she and the rest of your family are the founders of Smoothie Bombs. Um, now, I love those things. Um, they, they do make great smoothies and my kids can use them without making the kitchen look like the crisper drawer just exploded. So, yeah, so for me they are fantastic. So what was it like to work as a business development consultant for your family business? Um, I believe it was a really fast-paced startup um, that grew from nothing to being on it all supermarket shelves very, very quickly. So can you talk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So the the business really started um, around the same time when I was 16. Mum had done a nutrition degree uh, as like a mature student and she, she'd always loved health. And um, one of the ways she tells the story about this business is she'd done a degree in nutrition. She was consulting nutrition clients, telling people how to be healthy. And then my younger sister was this really fussy eater. And even though mum had all this knowledge about nutrition, my sister just wasn't actually eating well. So she felt kind of like 
oh my gosh, like in my own home, I haven't somehow figured this out. Um, and her solution was to create these smoothie boosters, this new kind of idea that she knew my sister likes smoothies. Can I shove kind of all these nuts and seeds and nutrients into it? Um, so if I rush out early for work, she can make a smoothie in the morning. She's going to like the taste of it. and It's going to be really healthy. So that was already happening when I was in high school. I remember having those smoothies. And then when I got to college, they really productized it and made it like a, a brand rather than just kind of selling in clinics and a few cafes. Um, and within a few years, they were in chemist warehouse all over Australia um, and tons of other health food stores. Um, and eventually they started this online store and Woolies. And yeah, so all of this was happening as I was going through my education and I, I would work with them on the side um, to write grant applications, competition applications to help uh, them create systems in the business. Um, and so it was primarily my mum and my sister running this. My sister actually joined the company right after she finished high school as well. And so this is kind of their full-time gig. Um, and I've, I've, I've learned so much from them. I think, um, I think when people hear like family business, they have certain connotations of like maybe a cake store on the corner, which was actually the context where my mum grew up and learned her business skills because her parents ran a cake shop on the corner. But my family was like doing an e-commerce business and they learned how to use Facebook ads and they were developing and growing so quickly. And I think that um, as much as I was happy to contribute what I was good at, uh, kind of writing, copywriting skills, um, and kind of strategy, I was learning a lot from them along the way as well, which was really awesome. Yeah, and very inspiring. <laughs> so your your first official STEM role was with a yes. company called Swarm over in the States. Yes. And right. you consider that this launched your career. Can yes. you tell me more about how that worked and how how you feel that that actually set you on the path to where you are today? Absolutely. So when I finished Harvard, which was four years, I went over to the West Coast and I started a degree in aerospace engineering at Stanford. And pretty, like, I would say a month into that degree starting, I was introduced to uh, a man named Mike, who is now a very close friend and mentor of mine. Um, and he had done an aerospace engineering degree as well and was working at Google. And he had a friend, basically we met and we just, he like showed me around Google and I was in this like Silicon Valley tech startup hub, everything, that whole field for the first time. And he himself had started and sold, I think like five companies, totally crazy, now working at Google. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I admire this guy, he's super smart. And he basically said, I have, I have this friend, uh, she's just started a company building satellites. Is there any chance you would be looking for part-time job while you're studying or just interested in getting involved. And he introduced me to this woman, Sarah, um, who had started this company, Swarm. And at the time, it was just her and her business partner, uh, Ben, who was an engineer. They're both aerospace engineers. Sarah had been working at NASA um, and she'd also been at Google. And Ben was a, a professor at Michigan University in aerospace engineering. And then he started a company that was sold to Apple. So these are just these people that like, they're, I don't know, five, five and a bit years older than me and just like so much has happened in their life in the aerospace industry. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. These people are so cool. And it's a female CEO um, in tech, which is unheard of. At Stanford, in my classes, there were, I think, 75 people in my cohort in aerospace engineering. 
and less than 10 of them were women. So I was studying in a context where I'm totally prepared for my industry experience to just be like me and the boys. But actually the first job I got was like CEO, female, had the technical background, has this amazing vision to bring these tiny satellites to uh, into space, put them all over the world and enable kind of IoT connectivity everywhere in the world at a really low cost, which is amazing for you know, agriculture, but also for development purposes to help bring um, lots of people that aren't online yet online in developing countries. And so I was just like super, super inspired by the I, the opportunity to work with this woman, to work on this kind of problem. And then it was the, the kind of skill sets that I had. So initially I came in doing some orbital modeling, like really quite technical work. Um, but for anyone who's been in a small business, you know, you end up kind of just doing everything and anything to make things work. So I ended up jumping in and doing some grant writing for them as well. Um, and in I think the first six or so months, I won them this like $750,000 government grant towards the company. So that was really exciting. I was kind of feeling success early on as uh, even though I was still a student. Um, and then um, I started doing kind of more business development work where I was interviewing potential customers, understanding what they needed, trying to figure out how I could pitch our solution for their interests or we could adapt what we were doing on the engineering side to, to meet their needs. And so that was the first time that I'd done um, – that kind of early business development in the smoothie bombs I had done a lot more kind of back of office strategic planning organization content writing where mum and Lana had been doing all the product development and customer development in Swarm I was really doing that business development stuff for the first time myself and then connecting that with the engineering work and seeing like all right what can we do from an engineering perspective what what do people want from a business perspective how do we meet them in the middle with some kind of um product or solution that they're excited about um so so that was really that was really cool the company got funded by very well-known investors uh, and the team started growing while i was there doing my degree on the side um and it's only four years since the company started this year, but actually this year they got bought by SpaceX and I'm not allowed to tell you how much money they got bought by, but it was a lot, um, a, a very, very large amount. So it's, it's been this extraordinary experience of joining a company right at the beginning and just within four years, seeing them kind of get folded up under one of the largest space companies that's out there and knowing that this company is going to have this kind of huge future and the whole team is now part of SpaceX. Um, it's, it's super amazing. And it's really built my confidence and sparked my passion for startups. You can see like someone can just come up with an idea, build a team around them, um, get people excited and then, and then kind of go on to create something that, that could become really, really huge. Yeah. That must've been an amazing Absolutely amazing experience to have, um, especially whilst you were studying too, uh, and to get such job satisfaction and really um, connect with your industry before you even graduated. That's yeah, yeah just phenomenal. Uh, so you you left um, Swarm and yeah. you've moved on to your own venture. So Ability is your current venture. Yes. Uh, now it's an online presentation development platform for educators. Yes. And I know this is one of your passions, um, especially considering your your background with you know, striving uh, to understand where you wanted to go and, and really wanting to be the top of the top as early as a 16-year-old. Um, 
So who is Ability aimed at and was that why you actually developed it or was there another reason? Yeah, um, so I can I can tell you the, the story because it's a bit of a pivot from kind of space technology. Um, so as I was leaving Swarm, I got really passionate about uh, kind of two things. The first was more of this business development work. I realized I actually just really liked doing people-facing work. I love understanding the engineering and technology, but when I was like in a day-to-day work context, I actually just really enjoyed talking to people. I'm not so much a personality that's like good to sit in a room on a computer writing code all the time. So I like to understand how it works. Um, so that was one thing that I realized that just like practically my day-to-day work lifestyle was a little bit more suited to business than um, the hard engineering work. Um, and then I was also feeling really, really strongly about how can we improve education so more people can have experiences like this. And there were two directions I thought I could take it. One of them was content. Like, can I actually teach kids more about life skills and networking and, uh, and like the things that have helped me get here that I've identified while we've been chatting, like this kind of asking people for help and putting together a goal and goal setting. Should I teach that? Because maybe I can empower more people to have, have these awesome experiences through that. Or should I create some kind of tool that allows every teacher to be a more effective communicator? Um, so those were the two things that I was thinking of really with this motivation to like give back in some way um, through education so that other people could kind of feel the way I felt about learning. Um, and what we ended up doing was actually creating both. So I spent all last year delivering online um, soft skills and entrepreneurship classes to kids and teens. Uh, and while we were doing that, we were developing the tool to make that content delivery more engaging and fun. So um, the experiment we were running was, which of these has the biggest business potential, delivering this content or kind of selling this app that, that can deliver any content? Uh, but we were doing the two of them at the same time um, so that both of them could be kind of as high quality as possible. So we're delivering the content to like test out to people resonate. And they were, it was so fun to run these classes. Kids are extremely insightful. If you kind of probe them around, around these questions. Um, and then we wanted to make those classes as good as possible by creating this interactive platform as an alternative to zoom that had like buttons and, uh, like polling and drag and drop and whiteboards and all of this thing, this stuff in the video conferencing tool instead of having to have tons of different tabs open because a lot of the kids, um, they struggled technologically when we had like Zoom open and then some quiz on another web page and then we had to share our screen and then like there was lots of clunkiness. So we wanted to create this really high quality experience for our own classes and then thought if we make it good enough for our own classes, then eventually maybe we'll sell this platform. And if this platform isn't interesting to other people, then we'll just keep running these classes and have more of them. So we were kind of we were kind of balancing this these two different approaches at the same time. Um, and in the last uh, three or so months, we've realised that the the kind of demand for that online platform, or the number of people that are experiencing frustration with having um, so many different things open while they're running a session, is like really high, and people are quite excited about it. So. Uh, what we found when people do presentations online right now, usually they'll have 
Google Slides. They might use a tool called Kahoot or Mentimeter or one of these other interaction tools. Um, and then if they want to play a video at any point, they'll also have a tab with YouTube open where they'll share their screen for that video. Um, and with each of these different integrations, there are really common issues that keep arising when people get kind of frustrated or the audience gets disengaged. Um, and if they aren't using these interactivity tools like Hoot at all, then usually it's a really one-sided presentation and it's awkward for the presenter and they're trying to get input out of the audience and just no one is responding at all. And I'm sure most people listening have experienced one side of that being the presenter or the audience. So, so for the people that are already using those tools, we just wanted to simplify it by bringing them all into one place. Um, and that's what we were doing with our own classes. Like it's, it's a video conferencing tool. You can make the slides interactive um, and we get much, much more engagement out of the students. And for people that weren't already using all those different tools, um, we're trying to make it easy for them to switch rather than having to learn tons of different platforms and set up tons of different accounts, showing them that it's really easy for them to make their sessions more engaging and interactive as well without, um, without too much extra work. We really just want to make it simple and easy and fun. Um, and, and yeah, we've got our first few, uh, customers on board testing it out at the moment. One uh, is teaching Chinese classes. Another one's doing college application coaching actually. So teaching people how to get into us colleges the way, like the way I was just talking about in a bit more detail. Um, we have, um, some, uh, kind of startup incubators. We have a whole range of different people, uh, delivering content to both kids and grown up or professional audiences, block training, tra trainings, um, tons of different things. So we, we're still in the early days of learning and we're looking for new people who would be interested in testing it out. Um, yeah, so it's really exciting. I, I guess one of the other exciting parts about the app is that you can like brand it to suit your, your own company. So people are having a lot of fun, like having their online classroom, have their own kind of color scheme and logos and, uh, being a little bit less generic than what you what you see on Zoom. Mm. Yeah. Those are all definitely issues that we've experienced in train online training that yeah. we've delivered over the last twelve months. And oh, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Personally, I'd love to um, yeah. to use your your platform. That sounds like exactly what what we did because yeah, we had the Kahoot and the Zoom and all of the issues and yeah, yeah, and they're great tools, right? It's it so works when you're in person and that's all you need. Um, but when it's online, it just adds this friction and awkwardness. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Especially when your audience might be from government, that adds just another layer of complexity. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, yeah, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would probably also, um, you know, be founders and entrepreneurs in, um, yeah. in the space to trial. Uh, these, this platform will use it when you when you launch it um, properly and that's so I think it's definitely where the industry needs to head so I'm very excited to hear about Ability and um, where you're heading with that. Um, but let's take a step sideways um, yeah. just for the moment and I'm so impressed with your passion for experiences and life and what you've done and your I guess your energy around STEM um, and engineering what drives you to keep going uh, and get to your next adventure? Um, good question. I think I think um, 
I think part of it is momentum, right? Like when you do something and it works, you have this momentum to keep doing things. I think it's confidence momentum to some extent. I don't know if anyone's ever used that term. We can coin that. But you you have success in one project or endeavor and then the next one feels possible as well rather than some other really, really hard thing. Um, and I know what it feels like when everything goes wrong for a long time as well, <laughs> how much harder that is to maintain uh, that momentum or enthusiasm. Uh, but when I do, when I do feel kind of confident and driven, it's because I'm thinking about all the things that have worked in the past that I should be confident and excited about. Um, I think one part of it started really, really young, uh, which was learning music. And I think, um, I had this moment like two years ago where I realized that I studied piano for 15 years and I actually can't play piano anymore. Like I can remember a couple of tunes and I had this moment where I was like, why did I waste 15 years studying piano when I can't play anything anymore? And um, I was reflecting on it for a while because I was like, why does everyone do this, put their kids through music lessons if none of them end up, like so few people become classical musical players. But I think actually the real value as a kid is it's so satisfying to play a song that sounds good. It gives you this confidence reinforcement when you can, because it's all like it's auditory in it. You know, when you listen to a song that you just love and it's like, you just, it gives you this feeling when you, when you play a song really badly, you're practicing and you finally have that moment of getting through the whole piece and feeling that just like visceral reward signal from it sounding good and bright. I think that's like really, really good training for kids. To, to like become self-learners because they get into this habit of like maybe once a week they learn a new song. They get into this habit of knowing that a bit of effort turns into this feeling of satisfaction in a way that's much harder to consistently feel that with, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of other examples of activities as kids that gave me that level of like confidence that I've gone from not knowing to knowing something. So I think it's this kind of meta education of learning how to learn that the music gives you. Um, so that's part of it. And then, yeah, I've just, I've done a lot of kind of random crazy things that have worked out really, really well. And so I, I have this just kind of confidence now that like, if I take on some other initiative, it's probably going to work similarly. I really like to package it into projects as well, rather than having an ongoing, never-ending um, activity. I think it's much better when I can quantify, have I succeeded in this thing? Like I, I want to be able to measure it to feel that satisfaction. Um, so I, I set up my projects in that way. So I, I am self-reinforcing uh, the, the confidence and, and enjoyment of the process. Yeah. That is such a different way to look at your career uh, yeah. and how you structure your career because whilst a lot of people these days do um, jump around within their career, I've never heard it described in that way that you would package it as a project or a, you know, a discrete um, period of time or a thing that you want to achieve and then move on to the next thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll put it within the career as well. So like one, one like you could think of it as like a, it's even before it's on a personal level. So it's not like what I'm doing within a team, but in a team, you can have like a quarterly plan. I have a personal kind of initiative plan that often coincides with what I'm doing for the business, but sometimes it's separate. So while I was at Swarm, for example, um, before I left and I started investigating this education angle, 
I spent three months on a road trip around the US um, visiting schools, trying to understand what was going on. So the way I packaged this project was project, like visit 50 schools, um, understand what's going on in the classroom, why it is or why it isn't working, try and find some inspiration. But that quantify, like when I visit 50 schools, I will feel like I've reached some kind of success metric. So I spent, um, I put together a few posts in Facebook groups, posted them in these teachers groups in the US, asked if anyone would let me just observe them in their classroom for a day, got tons of responses, went and coordinated with all these people, put it into a spreadsheet, made this route over three months, and then literally just drove around the country uh, in my Toyota Prius, um, mostly slept in Airbnb, sometimes actually slept in a car. <laughs> it, was a, it was a bit nuts. Um, but I went to 50 schools and I like got to sit in on these classrooms. And every time I talk to teachers, one, it's totally legitimizing. They're like, whoa, I've never seen 50 different classrooms. That would be so cool to have that kind of overview of the education system. So it, it, it's an in for as a non-classroom teacher. A classroom teacher will usually trust me knowing that I have that experience. So that's really helpful. Um, but also it really just developed my understanding of what was going on and what I cared about and what I, what I wanted to solve. And it's this package where I, I have like a really clear vision of like, I drove in my car, I went around and I did all these things. And now she has this really nice story that I can tell myself and I can tell other people and I can analyze everything that happened and I can categorize it. Like all the interviews that I have with teachers from that trip, it's in one folder. It's really neatly organized. I can bring up the details of that trip in more or less detail for the, for the use case. Um, and it, it informs my future, but it felt like every part of that process felt exciting rather than just like some other work that I was doing. So I, I, I knew it was going to end at some point, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And probably meant that you could put in more effort and sustain that effort for longer because you had that enthusiasm and you knew that there was the end point. Yeah. And it's a goal. Like it's a goal that you're working towards. I just love being goal oriented. I'm very much someone that advocates like project-based learning. I think that if you have a goal, something that you're trying to achieve, you find the energy kind of, as you were saying, to do the parts of the project that you don't care about because the, the end state is motivating you through the, the kind of sludge of it. Yeah. <laughs> so Nina, you're an astronaut in training. A businesswoman, entrepreneur, and engineer. Your current venture abilities helping young people understand their educational passion and learn in a more engaging way. Yeah. I lo have loved chatting with you today and wish you all the best with ability. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you as well. I've, uh, it's been a pleasure to be here. Join us for our next episode for more inspirational stories, actionable tri uh, tricks and unleashing the eco-warrior inside you. Until next time, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and head over to our socials to explore a little more about us. This has been Chanel Gleason-Willick for the Beyond the Green Line podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time, keep thinking green.